welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lucas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this episode, I'm speaking to Lord Jim Knight. He was Education Minister in the UK under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He is now a member of the House of Lords and he is the Chief Education Officer of TESS Global, a company that supports hundreds of thousands of teachers. We'll be talking about what the Corona crisis means for students who are stuck at home and for teachers who need to support them remotely, but also about what we can learn from that situation to make education ready for the future and to build a system that works for everyone. Along the way, Jim shares many interesting lessons from his journey through politics, charities and business. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. So at the moment, millions of students all over the world are at home, probably more than pretty much ever before. And I think you are speaking to a lot of teachers. Earlier today, I think you were doing a webinar on how they can best support students. So I was wondering what your impression of the current situation is. Well, I think it's a really challenging situation for teachers, for parents and for children themselves. Um, yeah, just in terms of their own well-being, I think there are plenty of signs from things that I hear and some of the studies that have been made that a lot of children are in a degree of low-level stress, if you like but that then there are a number of more vulnerable children who we should be more concerned about. But yeah, they are not alone. I think many parents are finding it very difficult, having their kids at home and trying to work at the same time and worrying about their own jobs and their own incomes. So we therefore have children learning in quite stressful environments. And then teachers are really struggling to work out how to deliver a service. So no, I think this is a really worrying time for children, for parents, for teachers. You know, We've never seen a crisis like this before. We have unprecedented numbers of children all over the world, not in school. And in many cases, they're not expected to go back to school until September. And that means for children themselves, you know, there are, there's plenty of signs that they're in low levels of stress. You know, they're being perhaps more emotional than normal, um, that they're missing their friends, they're missing their human contact, they're missing their teachers. They are uh, dependent on their parents sometimes as playmates and their siblings, and that's not always easy. In some parts of the world, you know, talking to friends in Italy, for example, they've not been allowed to leave home for eight weeks until yesterday. And, you know, as a child being shut up in Spain and Portugal at home, not even allowed outside for all of that time, I think that's just, that's inevitably going to be quite traumatic. And then for parents, managing their own worries, their own stresses, Their worries about their loved ones, their elderly loved ones, their worries about their income um, and their household, their worries about their stressed children, their worries about whether their children were already behind and they're now getting further behind. Um, for poorer families, they may have been relying on the free school meals from, from schools and they're not getting those. And then their teachers, the teachers are trying to work out how to make all of this work. And now they're worrying about how to make going back to school with social distancing work. None of those things are obvious. I think it's a really difficult time, but there may be some good things that come out of it because there may be some things that were ready to be changed. And, um, and maybe now we've got an environment where we can change them. Yeah, I definitely want to explore that more with you. Um, but in terms of understanding the current situation, 
I know that you've spent a lot of time back when you were in government working on closing the digital gap. Where do we stand on that, based on your impression? Are most students actually able to engage with the online offerings that are there? Uh, I don't think most are able to, know. I think we are probably somewhere. I mean, I would guess in England, which is the country I know best, we are somewhere between half a million and three quarters of a million children who can't properly access the learning material online. You know, that, And it might be slightly more than that, I guess, but um, because it's not only about the devices, it's also about the connectivity. So in many of those poorer homes, the only devices are mobile phones. And some of the content will work on mobile phones, but a lot of it won't. And a lot of it will need a more substantial device, you know, a laptop or a, an iPad. Some may even require a printer, which is slightly mad, but you know, that is the reality of some of the worksheets that have been sent home. And yeah, that's that's quite a big ask for poorer families to have those things and have access to those things in, in, during lockdown. And, and, you know, a lot of schools are trying to make up for that by delivering printed stuff to those that really need it. But, you know, these are workarounds and in some ways they're humiliating for those families that need to ask for them. And then it, where families have devices, they may be being used by parents trying to work. And then there is the connectivity. You know, for a lot of poorer families, the only data they have is pay-as-you-go data. And in those cases, there will be families choosing between data and food, you know, literally. And, uh, and that's a real challenge for us. And I hope that out of this crisis, we will get an advance where people essentially see access to the internet as something closer to a right, something closer to a, a utility that... A bit like water, we shouldn't cut off people's internet because it's very hard to function. You know, in my country, it's very hard to claim benefits unless you're online. It's very hard to get a job unless you're online. It's very hard to access cheaper uh, utilities, uh, cheaper shopping unless you're online. And now it's really hard to educate your child unless you're online. So there's a sort of fundamental right to that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And it's something that, that I personally didn't appreciate enough uh, before this crisis. Remember in the run-up to the general election last year, there was this debate about making internet access universal and nationalizing it. And I rolled my eyes a little bit at it because I know I'd come to really take it for granted. So I think for that, this might really be a, a welcome uh, reminder. Yeah, What and, do you, you think know, is working? Well, again, this isn't about education, but you know, the About, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, um, I was chairing an organization which is now called the Good Things Foundation, which is the main digital exclusion charity in the UK, uh, committed to uh, getting what amounts to about 10, 11 million people who are currently offline, online and confident to use online. And yeah, when we last did that study, the average saving that it made on people's bills every year as a family was over 200 pounds. And if you're on benefit, that's a massive amount of money. So in terms of the, the educational gap that this is widening, how do you think that can be closed again? Because I've seen some of your, uh, for example, your recent podcast where you argue that teachers really need to focus on students who are at risk of being left further behind now. But what can that actually look like? Well, I think the future looks, it, it's really hard to predict. And it's, it, it needs, first of all, I think we kind of need a pause. We need to offer teachers and educators just a little bit of headspace to just reflect and how we do take this forward. In the meantime, for as long as schools are closed and, and we're not in school holidays, then obviously the kids that were behind are likely to be getting further behind. 
whereas the children of middle class parents like me, with parents with university degrees, you know, with lots of books in the house and lots of lots more educated conversations, so to speak, you know, without wanting to sound patronizing or generalizing too much, um, they're going to be fine. You know, frankly, they need some human contact with their teachers and with their friends so that they don't feel lonely and they don't have growing mental health problems out of this. But apart from that, if they are, frankly, if they're just left to get on with it, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll soon catch up. They're from advantage homes. So then I would like teachers and schools to be able to, you know, yes, do that bit of human contact with, there's a universal provision, but use most of their time targeted on helping those children who really need it to, one, be safe and healthy. That's, you know, you can't learn unless you're safe and healthy. And then, two, be able to catch up, certainly on the basics of English and maths, and obviously digital literacy. You know, I think that that's as fundamental these days as being able to read, write, and add up. You've got to be confident online. And we can get them caught up in those things or you know, more realistically, stop them getting further behind. When schools do restart, then that would be a, a bit of a win, frankly. It would be almost an unexpected result. But then we do have to try and anticipate what restarting looks like. And that's where we enter a whole world of uncertainty about how we make that happen. For sure. And there's already some research showing that summer holidays on their own have the effect you, you're just describing, that that's the time when the gap opens up most. So now to have this much longer break poses uh, very big risks. I'm just wondering if yeah, there's it, a way it, to... It does. And if you think about the effect of good nutrition, good sleep on learning, and that's before you get any of those other bits of, you know, all of the content that kids will absorb, um, whether it's good content or bad content. And there'll be some at the moment who are lived in, living in locked down abusive households. You know, there are all sorts of things to worry about for some of our children. And um, we need to get them into a professionally run provision where they're also given well or where there's also some confidence that they receive sufficient nutrition uh, and that in turn will help them sleep better you know those those things i think are really really important yeah and if the current political proposals are anything to go by then schools will clearly open part-time with limited provision just to enable social distancing um, so i'm wondering if you see any chance for those provisions to really be targeted at students who need it most, but who might not have the parents who demand it most? Yes, yeah, so I mean, I, I understand from the government's point of view, quite rightly, they're going, look, we need, we need to, as we come out of this, yes, try and ensure that people remain healthy and that we don't end up in another round of in infection um, and we don't allow the virus to really get out of control again. So that then means... We need to maintain social distancing until we have real confidence that the virus is, is properly dormant. I don't think it'll ever die, but it'll be, you know, we, we need it to become dormant. Um, and then, so I understand that. And they're also mindful of the economy and the need to get the economy moving again. And that there's a, there's a limit to how much borrowing we can do to just keep everything sort of artificially going, which is what, you know, things like the furloughing scheme, the employment retention scheme is doing. But If we're going to get the economy going, of course, we need to have schools moving uh, because if schools are closed, then parents have to stay at home. And whilst 
some of us can, office workers probably carry on working remotely and they should carry on working remotely for social distancing reasons. And kind of, I therefore get the reason to want to reopen schools. But it's really hard. If, for example, in a big city like London, when you look at the need for social distancing on public transport, probably they would have to run public transport at something around 20% capacity. My guess is that schools and commuting to school probably occupies about 25% of the transport capacity. And immediately the two become in conflict with each other. So then you're saying, well, maybe in an ideal world, we could find a way of saying to the children of office workers who are going to carry on working from home and your children will also study at home with you and schools will have to provide a learning service for those children and they by and large won't go into school. And then school becomes a place where in order to respect social distancing, you can't have class sizes that are more than you know 10 to 15 as opposed to the norm of 30 or so. And so you say, well, school is then for, for the most disadvantaged kids who really need the social welfare services of school, like food and like some of the other emotional support that they get. Um, and then those that can come to school on foot or by bike, because frankly, we can't have them coming in any other way and that they come in respecting social distancing as they come in and they come in into a, a school that doesn't have as much of a population. Now, what that then means is that we're redefining what a school is. A school then is not a place where all of the learning takes place by any means. It, it frankly never has been. Home has always been a place where lots of learning takes place, not all of it homework, lots of informal learning. You know, our children never stop learning. Sometimes they learn bad stuff, sometimes they learn good stuff, but they never stop learning. What we're going to have to move to is formalizing a lot more of that home learning and thinking much more deeply about how we teach remotely, how we teach a blend, some in the classroom, some at home, um, how we give people the proper social and emotional development as well as the cognitive development that they need when they are not mixing so much. Um, could we use schools in shifts a bit more? You know, in some parts of the world, you might have two or three school days that use the same building every day um, by starting one early and finishing at lunchtime, having another one run through the afternoon and the other one run in the evening. Probably we won't go that far. But we're going to have to be really imaginative about this. And it needs proper leadership at a system level to think it all through because, you know, at a primary school level, you're not going to stop children touching each other. And frankly, it'll be really difficult to stop those children who are used to being hugged by their teachers to deprive them of that, that affection and that, that emotional need is going to be really hard. But we've got to work out what the answer to that is at secondary. You know, we have corridors and lunch halls that are really busy places with lesson changeovers, those can't happen anymore. So what are the timetabling implications? What are the, are we going to stagger start times, not have school, you know, bells in schools because we don't want everyone changing lessons at once. Are we going to keep teachers moving around and children staying in classrooms? Are we going to keep, have a classroom teacher that teaches all subjects in secondary? You know, there's a whole set of questions about all of our modeling around the way schools work that we are suddenly going to have to have answers to. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's not helped by all the current messaging about schools reopening very soon without any of these, these answers in place. So at least the teachers that I speak to in my social environment are all quite stressed by the idea that schools are going to open in a couple of weeks without 
being given answers to any of the questions you just raised. Yeah, and I kind of get that um, the government's thinking is probably to open just a few year groups initially. And it sounds like their view is we'll prioritize those that have got tests. And at which point I hold my head in my hands because right now I don't really care about tests. I care about children recovering from a crisis and a trauma and providing the right emotional support for them uh, and the opportunity for them to reflect as humans and to rebuild their social connections. And then the learning can follow, frankly. And if we don't have tests for a, a while, that's not going to be the end of the world. You know, all being well, unless something really bad happens, children are going to live longer. Um, you know, many of them in the Western world are going to live till they're 100. They'll be working until they're 80. Yeah, they've got time. If they don't start working for a year later, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, they'll be impatient, but we've just got to kind of take a different worldview. School is not about taking tests. School is not just about delivering a curriculum. It's much more about developing the social, emotional, and cognitive person so that they can be a successful and a, and a happy and fulfilled person. And if that, you know, whether that involves tests, whether that involves the current curriculum, whether that involves going to university, I think is a secondary questions compared to the primary question, which is how we develop them as rounded humans and support them through a profoundly traumatic period. Yes, um, the tests are something I'd actually like to come to in a moment. But before we move away from what's going on at the moment, I was wondering if there are a couple of examples you could share how teachers manage to support the emotional and social needs at a distance. Because I find it a lot harder to imagine than keeping academic learning going. Sure. I was talking to a head teacher of a primary school just last week. Um, and they have a lot of challenging pupils in her school, which she manages brilliantly. And they have a morning check-in first thing in the morning over video of the whole class where they see each other's faces. They see the teacher's face. It doesn't take long. And it's just a check-in where as social creatures they can just see their friends and then at the end of the school day at three o'clock or whatever they then have story time and they're back on the video and someone reads them a story it's simple as that and that creates an emotional connection and then the teachers otherwise are spending their time supporting those kids that really need the support and i think in that case that school has got it right um, I speak to other schools, you know, a friend of mine who teaches in Wales using Hoob, I think they call the platform in Wales, and is, again, talking to her class, at least every day, as a class, um, talking through what the learning might be today, um, how to access it, giving feedback, doing what teachers do. But, you know, there, there's something emotionally intelligent about the way it's done that is profoundly different to those schools who are telling their teachers you're not allowed to do video with kids. Um, we are just going to send homework and then at some point we will mark it and just hope for the best. Um, I'm afraid I don't think that's good enough. Yeah. Okay, but maybe moving on to this question of tests, I think some people have, have described the fact that the standardized large uh, high-stakes tests this year are cancelled. Some people have described that as an opportunity to rethink whether... Um, that that kind of assessment is really needed. To some extent, I guess the jury is out on that when we see how universities will really respond to a cohort of students who have been assessed in a different way. How do you see that? 
what are the chances there and what should we be looking out for? Well, I'm, you know, when I was schools minister 10 years ago, I did manage to scrap standardized attainment tests for key stage three for 14 year olds. Um, but generally, I'm as guilty as any other schools minister of overseeing a system that over tests kids and uses their test scores for levels of accountability that are too burdensome and stifle innovation. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, one of the consequences of all of that is we have a highly compliant set of school leaders who basically think that they have done a job when they've done everything that they've been asked to do. You know, they are outstanding at being compliant, but I'm not sure whether that translates, particularly right now, when they need to be innovators and when they need to lead the human communities of schools, whether that translates into being proper leaders of, of learning and, and you know, proper child development. So um, the place of testing in all of that is we have too much summative testing in our English system. We no longer need public examinations at 16. You know, they're a hangover from when you're allowed to leave school at 16. One of the other things I did as schools minister was took the legislation through to raise the education leaving age to 18. So they're an anachronism, public exams at 16. Um, if it were me, I would end the national curriculum certainly at 14 and free up and, and scrap GCSEs at 16. Um, I think there may be a case then for shifting the SATs that we currently have at 11 to 14, and you could have some testing at the end of the national curriculum. Um, but, you know, there are successful com countries around the world that just have a school leaving exam, and that's it. And I have some sympathy with that, um, that as we use technology more, we can capture through analytics how people are doing better. You know, the, the formative assessment that is crucial for good teaching and learning so that you can give feedback to learners. You know, the analytics there can be captured so that we can, we can see how kids are doing. And then they, they take a public examination at the end of the whole process, just before they leave at 18. You know, it's a very compelling notion we'd save a fortune in the amount of money that we pay to the assessment community and i think our children would be just as well educated if not better so because you know i look at something like year six the last year of primary in too many schools it is a moribund year for learning because kids spend all of their time preparing for tests not learning anything new they're just revising they're doing test papers it's boring dry terrible business and uh, we can say the same about preparing for GCSEs. Why not free up that for learning? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense, especially for tests like GCSE that don't have a, a real function as much. Um, I mean, I'm wondering if part of that isn't all that the tests are just very conservative and aren't, aren't tech-enabled. For example, I think the last round of PISA tested problem-solving skills through computer-based scenarios. And, and to me, that seemed... Like quite a simple way of bringing testing to life a lot more for students and maybe make it more relevant than a multiple choice paper and pencil test. Yeah, it is, uh, I think, very difficult to defend people sitting in sports halls on small desks with a paper and pen um, as a form of assessment. It's a skill that we drill into our young people that they never, ever use again. Uh, why do we do that? You know, we have a perfectly good assessment techniques you can yes you can use technology but you can also look at how for some other forms of assessment which we all respect we put the emphasis on the 
skills of the examiner, on the assessor, you know, not just in a driving test, but in uh, music grading exams, in dance exams, in drama exams, in art exams. We are depending on the judgment of expert assessment to observe and grade. You could do that. You could do a whole mix of things and liberate us from stuffy sports halls where you sit for two and a half, three hours and get stressed and get a sore hand from writing really hard and illegibly. And then this sort of ridiculous cottage industry of those papers then being sent and left in people's porches in the rain for them to pick up and earn a bit of extra money by marking um, and taking forever as a whole process so that then we can't apply to universities with our results. We have to get conditional offers and we've seen all sorts of problems with that. The whole thing is crying out for change and reform and modernization. For sure. And I I completely agree that expert assessments are important, but then they also seem to have clear limitations. So when you look at some of the research um, or also the practice in in orchestra auditions, where they now let people audition behind the screen because they realized that with all the impressions we quickly form of people, it's very difficult to do any kind of objective or even yeah any kind of fair assessment without bringing in lots of processes that to some extent, constrain yep. experts. Do you see a case for that? Yes, that has to be part of the mix. And, um, you know, the there aren't going to be that many things that we would want to assess necessarily by performance, um, where you'd have to see the whole body. There may be um, some things that we would assess more orally with vivas um, and oral examinations. But equally, if you want, and they can be done over technology where, you know, I'm talking to you, I'd I have no idea what you look like. <laughs> and uh, You may have some idea what I look like. I don't know. You may have Googled me. I, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and and even if you want to assess people over video, you can pixelate their faces if you wanted to. You, know, you could, or, or if you know, we wanted to assess them as on the sports pitch for some things, we might not need to look at their faces too much because they're not that relevant to their sporting performance. And you could just edit those out of the photo, out of the uh, what's being assessed. Yeah, there are. I think there are different ways of doing this that we just need to be a bit more imaginative about. A lot will, in the end, be people on computers producing reflection to a time pressure. And that's all well and good, yeah, because that's what we all do in the real world. And so those are good skills to being motivated, to motivate people to learn while they're in school. But we should be thinking much more and challenging ourselves much more about what we can do to just liberate the assessment world. What do you think needs to happen for... The lessons learned this year when exams aren't taking place as usual to actually lead to changes because i'm quite quite worried that we'll see that it somehow works this year and that we then go back to business as usual well it will be very interesting to see how the teacher assessments or or whatever we use are moderated by Ofcall because um, they'll have to find a way of moderating to ensure that the grades are a fair and you know, reflection that are resistant to challenge because there might be some who want a legal challenge. And if they can do that, then that will beg a question as to whether, you know, could they do that more often, please? Yeah, we could get, you know, that there are scenarios where I don't think it will be fair to examine this time next year either. And they're not just about other waves of infection, but they are that it's possible that next year will not be free from significant disruption as a learning year, 
you know, it is really likely that we will have teachers having to work out how to do blended learning, how to teach some children at home and teach some children in school, as I've discussed. Uh, it is really likely that we will have some significant workforce issues. There might be some teachers who right now are quite enjoying their change in lifestyle and don't want to go back. There will be a bunch of new teachers who will start who haven't had the same amount of classroom practice and who certainly haven't been trained in teaching over technology. And they will have to, they'll be very green and they'll have to learn really quickly. And we might have a bigger retention problem with them than normal, which, and, and that the retention problem is bad enough. We may well start September with a bunch of vacancies because the normal recruitment activity is, is somewhat constrained because teachers who might need to move in order to get a job can't move at the moment. They can't go and check out a place that they might want to go and work in. But teachers are still going to retire at the end of this school year. So, you know, will we start the new school year with a bunch of vacancies? And, and therefore, will we have a whole new bunch of teachers starting in January uh, rather than in September? And so there's then a bunch of supply teachers, you know, some of whom are great, but some of whom are not, who are then teaching our kids through big chunks of next year, you know, it may not be fair to hold kids to the same standard as we've been holding them for this current year and the next year, in which case, should we carry on with the tests next year? Should we save the money and the time and just focus more on giving them a good learning and emotional experience and then assess them in the same way that we have this year? Maybe some of the teaching unions are saying that. And if we've gone two years without tests, well, then will we want to go back? I don't know. Now, even outside the current crisis, I've seen that you said in various contexts that the educational system works for at most two-thirds of students. And I was wondering who you think is left behind and why? Well, so the basis of that comment is that um, we kind of set as a standard that you should get uh, you know, reasonable grades in the standardized tests for... English, maths, science, a language of humanity, and you know, at best two-thirds get that standard. So on its own terms, the system is, is failing that other third. And those kids will most likely be the more disadvantaged, particularly in areas with concentrations of disadvantage, particularly from families where there isn't a tradition of doing well in education. And... So we are then repeating cycles of disadvantage because you know, we know in order to prosper in what is increasingly a knowledge economy, you, we, you need higher levels of education. That doesn't necessarily mean you need higher level qualifications because lots of employers are changing their demands on, in qualification terms, but you do need higher levels of intelligence and learning. And we absolutely have to challenge ourselves as to whether or not we need a different system that works universally for every child rather than one that at best works for two-thirds. What do you think are some of the key changes that would be needed to, to make the system work for, for everyone? Well, maybe some of what we're seeing happening at the moment in that I think a lot of parents and schools who are thinking about what children should be learning right now during this lockdown, what it comes down to is keep going on here, English and maths, You're learning new digital skills because that's the only way you're able to learn. So that takes care of the core. And then a lot of the other stuff, it's more engaging if you do it through project-based, problem-based learning approaches, um, a little bit more learning by doing and more applied learning and stripping out some of the 
consistent, dry, academic style of learning and mixing it up a bit. And parents are seeing that that is what's more engaging for their kids. That's what their kids enjoy learning. And if we were to do more of that, then I think we would engage many more of us because I think most of us are not naturally people who respond to just sitting and listening and absorbing content and regurgitating it um, in an academic form. Most of us like it mixed up and they like we like to see the relevance of it. We like to apply it. We, we like to look at the world around us and, and have the learning reflect that world. And why wouldn't we do that more in our curricula and in our pedagogy in whatever amounts to our schooling in the future? Well, what's, what's the answer to that question? Why, why isn't it done more? Because the idea that we learn through experience isn't particularly new. Well, I guess the answer to that is we have a very small c conservative approach to education in that the whole system was designed as a big filter for universities. So they're a massive vested interest who are saying, don't change anything, you know, keep the A-levels, keep the intense specialization we have through the A-level system because that feeds us as research-based universities really well. So yes, that is very successful as a filter for people who go into academic careers, but not very many of us become academics professionally in our later life. So uh, we need a system that broadens that out. But they're not the only reason. The people who make the decisions as policymakers have done well out of our current education system, pretty much by definition. The people who write about education and write about the decisions those policymakers make, the journalists, They've also pretty much done well out of the current education system. So the sort of the commentariat and the people who are running our education establishments all think, well, it worked really well for me. Yeah, if we want excellence, then what we just do what worked for me. And they there just isn't enough of a voice for those that have been failed. And it's not their fault that they've been failed, but they have been failed. And so those are the big vested interests and the big blockages for reform. And indeed, many parents, probably most parents, also have a bit of a sense of, if my child is to do well, they need to work hard at school, get some qualifications, go to university, and then they'll be set up. And that's a lagging view from a reality where I think employers are changing the way they hire. They're growing more of their own talent. They are using things like the apprenticeship levy to do more earn as you learn. And they're starting to compete with the model of going to university and taking on a 50 grand debt. And the advent of things like the degree apprenticeship, you know, Rolls-Royce, you know, a great engineering company, their degree apprenticeship is more sought after than a degree from Oxford. And you don't get any debt from doing a degree apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce. You get paid to learn. That's where we should be going. That's the model that I'm, I'm most interested in. And I think parents will catch up and they will start to go, well, actually, maybe if there are those models, um, you know, I'm currently working on a degree apprenticeship for teaching as a policy that I think we need to introduce. If you could join the professions without taking on all of that debt, you know, and without some of the mental health pressures that you know, lots of parents are worried about their children's mental health, then, well, we'll have that, please. And then we can hang on to the idea of taking on debt to go to university if you really need it at a later stage. But you know, leave school, go to work, carry on learning. That's where I think we will end up. It's only a matter of when. 
So I come from Germany, where we, of course, have a vocational education system that goes quite a lot into that direction with much stronger apprenticeships and also degree apprenticeships. And I think there's, there's a huge amount of value in that. The one thing that I'm wondering is how that fits together with a world where we all need to prepare for having multiple careers, where one vocational qualification might actually be worth a lot less than it was worth 50 years ago. How does that fit together in your view? Well, and, you know, the German system is much admired here by many of us. And we look jealously at the cultures behind that because, yeah, some of these are cultural questions. You know, know, Finland has a great education, a great school system, because teaching is held up as being a really high esteem career. You know, every parent is proud of their child that becomes a teacher in Finland. It's not so much the case in this country. Um, Similarly, the culture in Germany around valuing vocational education to higher levels is valued, as as far as I perceive it, as much as a pure academic higher level education. So we're, we're jealous of that. But you're right to challenge whether or not that gives you the, the durability, the resilience in, in a rapidly changing labor market. And if I were running a university, if I thought I could get away with it with the regulators, what I would be wanting to do is probably in partnership with further education colleges that are more vocational, I would be interested in a subscription model for uh, students so that they come to the university maybe for an, a year initially so they have the right of passion the right of passage experience of independent living of independent study of the social interaction with a, with a cohort of students over a year but then they go to work um, and but they keep a relationship with the university through their working lives through the subscription that they pay and they're given learning services from that university. They might be given accreditation services where they can put qualification wrappers around the learning that they're doing in work, the learning they might be doing online, the learning they'll be doing uh, as they live their lives. Um, They could allow them to come back to campus for periods of time, for a semester or two, in order to pivot their career, learn some new things, reflect on what they've already learned, and then be propelled back off into the labor market to prosper further doing something new. I think we have to be more imaginative in how we design our institutions. Otherwise, they'll become bankrupt, probably literally, because if the university institutions themselves don't respond, then employers won't wait for them. They will invent their own solutions. That sounds like a fascinating model. I would be, yeah, I would be curious how regulators respond, but also how students respond. But definitely sounds like a, a possible way forward. Um, but talking about yeah, and it, and career it, might, it, it might be that Lucas, it might be that there's, that there's a sort of there's a blend in that, so that we get used to people working three or four days a week and then studying one or two days a week. That might be fine, but I think the sense of going off to a debt-laden three or four-year degree that's running out of time. Yeah, I'm actually quite skeptical of part-time university degrees uh, for a couple of reasons. One of them was that I was at an event with the board of a, of a German bank a while back, and all of them shared that that was the low point in their career and in their life when they were doing a part-time university degree. Um, so I think that that would then need to be also really rethought about how those aspects of life can be well integrated so that there is enough time and headspace and left to also live. Yeah, was that because they were basically still expected to do a full-time job whilst also doing a part-time degree? 
I think there was a part, another part was that they were going back to, they were kind of going back to being pupils in their feeling after they had established themselves as professionals. And of course, those two things can be addressed through better designed part-time degrees. Yeah, yeah. The, the institute, the teacher training institute that I helped to found at TES, um, that does a lot of essentially postgraduate degree level training to in order to qualify people who are working as teaching assistants but have bachelor's degrees but to qualify them as teachers and that works really well and they're they're pretty happy with that but it's been designed solely and exclusively to be done part-time and pretty you know a lot of it is online so there's not lots of campus-based stuff that's that sounds good um, as we're nearing the end of the conversation there there are a couple of questions i wanted to ask about your personal path since you clearly also had multiple careers um so uh, you spend quite a bit of time in government in, in different roles in a way that's still a bit hard to understand for me coming from a system where politicians generally specialize on, on one area. Um, what was it that kept you engaged with education rather than any of the other jobs that you held? That, well, so I, I was a, an environment minister for a year, which I, you know, I really did enjoy. And I, um, I was a biodiversity, rural affairs, landscape minister and... Um, But it wasn't very political. So, you know, in the end, for my political career, it was good to move. But I, I still kind of love uh, thinking about, you know, I'm a geographer academically by background. So I, I love that sense of thinking about humans and our interaction with the environment and how that works. But uh, so I still think about that a bit. And I'm fascinated to think about what the future of cities will be after this crisis, um, because I think we will fundamentally change our relationship with cities as a result of this. But uh, that's that's for a different podcast. Um, and then after I was schools minister for three years, I was employment minister in the post-2008 crash period where Gordon Brown asked me to work for a year to try and stop youth unemployment from rising and you know having a a blighted generation as a result of the crash. And you know, we did pretty well, actually, in, in the youth unemployment did start coming down within a year, which nobody predicted. But um, that year, looking closely at the labor market, reinforced for me how important education was and is, because I could see, because you know, an employment minister, frankly, is not an employment minister. An employment minister is an unemployment minister. And when I looked at the failures in the labor market, They were people who had been failed by education. And it, it was arresting in making me think more deeply about what a successful education system could look like. And I keep thinking about that because there is no right or wrong answer. It's not a science. And education remains fascinating because it's a profoundly human endeavor. Every human is different. Every teacher is different. Every pupil is different. Every circumstance of every pupil and every teacher is in is different. And so what works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another. And that means that the possibility for improvement is infinite. Um, but I am frustrated that what we, the possibility for improvement in the current system in my country is enormous. And then after your, your time in government, you stepped away from politics to some extent, at least. Probably partly because of the of the change in government, but did you also feel that it was kind of time for you to start doing something else, or what was that tr transition like for you? Well, so I lost my seat in the election. Um, I was fortunate that Gordon Brown offered me a permanent place in Parliament as a member of the House of Lords. But I soon realised that being in opposition in the House of Lords, um, it was it's an important job. 
but it's it's not a job for someone who is who was at the time less than thirty. And you know, I had I had some interesting consultancy with companies like Apple, um, but I wasn't going to really develop as a person unless I went and did a proper commercial job. And uh, that's what I'm doing now with a company called Tez, where I founded their Teacher Training Institute and where I'm now looking after their enormous user-generated content platform and all of their comms and so on. And I've got a reasonably significant executive job there as one of the chief officers of of a business that employs 650 people. And I've learned hugely from that. And it's a digital business, and that feeds my interest in digital policy. And it's an education business, so that feeds my interest in education policy, and I can reflect that back in Parliament. So I, I still feel like I'm, I can add something useful to the nation as a parliamentarian by reflecting back some of that experience and some of that reflection. But um, yeah, it was it was time to get step away from the front bench, certainly for a while, and learn some new skills. And you already used the word I wanted to ask you about with regard to tests. So it's. It's a for-profit commercial, uh, well, company, um, which isn't kind of the typical actor I would think of when I'm thinking of an organization working to improve state education. Why did you choose that over a think tank, a charity, one of the maybe more conventional actors? Well, I suppose partly I saw um, I, I saw an incoming government come in, and they. Um, They undid so much of what I did as a minister, um, almost overnight. Things I've worked really hard on and really believed in. And that's normal, but it's demoralizing. And um, I still remain so passionate about education. And when I thought about how I might be able to impact things, actually, commercial companies, if they are well-intentioned, and you know, I've been fortunate enough as to have been asked to redefine the social purpose of TES, which I've done and worked on our mission. Um, and it's something that I was talking to all the staff at TES about just today and imbues what we do and informs our work. And so a commercial organization with a strong sense of social purpose, with the power of the investment that it can receive and, to, and the agility that it has to move quickly, uh, can change things just as quickly, in fact, more quickly and just as permanently as as being in government, and that's that's compelling. I do chair um, an education uh, not-for-profit. I have been, you know, I'm, I sit on as a charity trustee and, and do some other things in those in the, in the third sector, but I don't see the power that I see in all, anywhere else than working with TES right now. Thank you. Um, if you still have... Another two or three minutes. I have two final questions I'd like to ask all of my okay. podcast guests. So the first one would be, uh, if you think back to, uh, let's say in your case, your 20-year-old self and yep. wanted to give your 20-year-old self some advice for making a difference in the space of education, what might you say? I think I would definitely advise my 20-year-old self, who at the time was a student at Cambridge University. I would be saying, don't try and please everybody, but do listen to everybody uh, much more carefully. Don't think that you know as much as you do. And uh, and then be clear about what you believe in and connect your what you've heard and your analysis with your values. And then you will achieve some good. Yeah, very important points. Um, and then 
not speaking to yourself, but speaking to everyone else, um, if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? It would say, keep learning by listening to children. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. This was fascinating. Uh, thank you, Lucas. It's been very nice to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoy it, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address in the show notes. Finally, if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Next time, I'll be continuing the conversation around the corona crisis. I'll be speaking to Sandra Ricker, who is the lead for technology at Kinoa School in Berlin. Kinoa is a school that was started by a group of teachers and innovators who decided to take matters into their own hands to set up an innovative school in inner city setting in Berlin where too many disadvantaged students are regularly failed by the educational system. One thing Kinoa really wants to do is to support the students holistically, which is very hard to do without face-to-face -face contact. So in my conversation, I'm asking Sandra how they can deal with that situation and what they can learn from it and what maybe others can learn from it moving forward. So stay tuned for that conversation.